Hello, my deadly darlings. I hope you are all on a path to a better tomorrow. The journey is arduous, so it's best to go slow. Baby steps. Anyway, this has been a big year for me. I've been to cities all across the country, and I have to say, some are better than others. But two that really stood out for me this year were New Orleans, which sandwiched our year of travel with two different trips, and um, Portland, which has become an unintended home away from home because people I care about keep moving there. Anyway, I'm just about ready to buy a barge and settle in for summers, folks. But desert rat, I shall remain. Okay, I'm not here to talk about either of those places in this episode. However, we are recording in Portland today, I guess, so there's that. Um, But we have a very special guest with us to talk to us about a very important topic. Inclusive death care and grief support. So I don't want to uh, drag out the introduction. Let's just get right into it right after this quick message. Hello to all you desert dwellers. I hope you're drinking your water in this heat, but some extra hydration can go a long way. At Higher Hydration Mobile IV, we offer the very best in home health with our trained mobile IV team. We can bring extra immune support, anti-aging treatments, or even hangover cures right to the comfort of your own home or office. And at Higher Hydration Mobile IV and Wellness, we go way beyond the basics with services like Reiki, sound healing, and a whole lot more. Check out our complete list of services online at higherhydrationmobileiv.com. Once again, that's higherhydrationmobileiv.com, currently serving the Phoenix metro area. I can do modern major general. <laughs> really? It's one of my stage warm-ups. Um, we can, want I, can I hear that real quick? You want to hear it? You better... I, I feel like you can't just say something like yeah, that. Yeah, you can't just toss that out. Deliver. What is it? Uh, I am the very model of a modern major general of information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and quote the facts historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. She knows the kings of England and quotes the facts historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I know the long equation but the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem I, theorem, I am teeming with a lot of news and many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I always forget the next verse. I can't believe I didn't get that on camera. Because that, so that would be our lead into this show. So we are very excited to have with us today community organizer, artist, ordained minister, and activist, Elena Vera, to talk with us about providing emotional support to individuals and communities in times of grief. Well, that's a cheery introduction for a kind of heavy topic, but uh, we're really glad you're here with us today. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. It's, you know, it's sort of the topic. It's <laughs> the original topic. The original topic. Um, so just to give our audience a little more background on yourself, um, would you mind giving us a little more background on yourself? Sure. Um... <laughs> it's kind of a broad question, but... Yeah, no, right. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Uh, (laughs) um, I have been working professionally as a clergy woman since 2016. Um, So however many years that is between then and when this airs. Uh, (laughs) 
see I'm looking forward to the future. Um, and working um, as a community organizer and a public speaker um, from before then, uh, I'm a trans woman of color. I'm Filipina and uh, Ashkenazi, so I, I grew up Catholic and Jewish um, <laughs> and Asian in rural Oregon, which is a party. Um, and I sought out a position of religious leadership specifically because I saw that my communities of queer and trans people of color weren't being served by religious structures and institutions and people as they were. I saw so many around me who were wounded and rejected and not getting the support and care that they wanted or needed. And I wanted to be that for my people. So I went and got the training to do my best at it. Um, I think I recognized at some point that I would be doing it whether or not I admitted it, no matter what job I was doing. So I should probably suck it up and um, and go all in. And so that's that's been what I've been up to for a while. I also um, consult nationally on mental health care policy, uh, speci- specifically around issues of suicidality and um, and mortality and grief in queer and trans communities um, and do media work and um, serve uh, in a couple of uh, queer arts nonprofits. I, I stay busy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> certainly sounds like you have a lot on your plates. Um, well, we are, as I mentioned, so honored that you were able to join us. Um, you know, the importance of grief care and inclusive death care is something that uh, that I, I really feel strongly about. It is something that, that brought me into my professional role. And um, I, think it's some- <laughs> I think it's something that uh, I would like to see communities embrace more. So I'm going to start off with something like this. All right. All right. Something I struggle with as both a funeral industry professional and as an actual human being is saying the right thing in times of loss. So we're going to we're going to just get that question on the table. Go. (laughs) That's probably the easiest question you're going to ask today. Oh, because there is not a right thing to say. Oh, everyone always wants there to be a right thing. They always want there to be something that you can learn, some kind of formula or phrase or prayer or offering that will make it okay, that will make it better. And it's one of the first questions anyone asks me about this stuff, about funerals, about death, about loss. And it's one of the things that every professional worth their salt almost certainly asks when they're in training to become someone in your profession or mine. And it's a really natural thing to want because it's awful when you're standing there in front of someone hurting and wanting to help. But what I have learned over a surprising number of funerals for how old I am is there's not a thing that makes it okay. And trying to have a correct thing to say, a right thing to say, is one of the quickest ways we hurt each other when we're hurting, Um, is when you have learned the thing that you're supposed to say, and you say it to someone for whom that's not the specific need. Death 
is something that everyone and everything has in common. It is the most reliable, um, universal constant among anyone you could meet. And our experience of loss is so individual and so mediated by our culture and our experiences and our background and our trauma and how we understand death in our culture, whether we understand it as positive or negative, whether we think that the people that we have lost are going somewhere in particular or becoming something in particular, whether we think they're just gone, whether we want to be comforted or we want to um, lean into the pain of it. Everyone has different needs around loss. And what they are most likely to need is to know that they're, they're not alone. Sometimes they will feel very, very alone and you don't wanna invalidate that. Um, but something, something about loss, about absence means there's, there's a real, there's a real ache for connection. Um, and sometimes that means someone wants to be alone for a while, but, um, they want to know you're there. They want to know that they matter to you and that the world isn't ending just because some part of it is ending right now. And just for folks to know that they're being listened to, that folks will show up for them, makes so much more difference than having a right thing to say. There's, I've been saying lately that the truest acts of love are dirty and boring. <laughs> that, um, that we think so grandly when it comes to devotion and care and community, but fundamentally at those edges, at those times of things like death and loss, when we show up and just sweep or do the dishes or clean the cat box, when we change the sheets, when we just take care of things for each other, um, when we bring food, which is traditional for a lot of us, um, especially food that we know that the person can eat, um, when we make the regular things a little easier so that they can focus their energies on dealing with the enormous feelings they're having. That can be so, so powerful in a way that nothing else can. When we just show up for each other, that's, that's the thing that binds us in a way that makes it everything else we do together as people possible. Um, that's wonderful. That's a, it's a wonderful way of putting that. <laughs> I got um, a little preachy. <laughs> no, no, no. That's. Um, I think it's a. It's remarkable. It kind of uh, goes into the question I was going to ask. Ask. I was going to ask next. Um, more specifically about grief care. Uh, you really did go into how we as individuals can show up. Mm -hmm. But as somebody who is a community care provider, a community right, right. leader. Um, but how do we as leaders offer that support? Right, right. You know, when I show up to do a funeral or a memorial service um, or a deathbed, I do everything I can to get out of the way. And that doesn't mean that I make myself unobtrusive. It means that 
I have to make sure that it is not about me. That when there are people in need, when there are people grieving, um, when there's a body present, um, when all of that is, is immediate for folks, they're not looking for me, the person. They're looking for a person-shaped uh, placeholder that can represent something big enough to hold them. And... <laughs> that's, a, that's a fucking great answer. <laughs> that's so good. It's why I wear um, clerical vestments when I work a lot of my contemporaries and colleagues, especially um, among sort of progressive clergy, um, often really don't like wearing um, clerical vestments. Um, they want to be more individualistic. They want to show that they're not hidebound. Um, they want to be able to bring themselves to it. And I think that's a really admirable impulse that is absolutely correct in a lot of situations. And it's a path. Um, but for me, um, I wear a uniform the way I've worn a uniform at most of the jobs I've ever had in my life that says that I'm here to work, um, that this isn't me, the individual here. This is me as a representative of something larger, whatever that is for you. Um, and as long as this is on, I'm hoping that you can trust that. And I try and make that part of how I show up as well as a leader that I'm, when I'm at a funeral, uh, I'm not trying to sound brilliant. I'm not trying to have a perfect turn of phrase. I'm not trying to wow an audience, um, which is all stuff that I will try and do at other kinds of speaking <laughs> engagements. You know, I'm not going to lie. Um, what I want them to know is that they are going through a thing that is common to the entire cosmos, um, a thing that places them in a context. Um, because that's what death does. We live in this deeply death-allergic culture that doesn't want to engage with mortality, that wants to avoid it at every turn, that wants to pretend it away and treat it as an evil um, and as a thing to be fought, which is so profoundly futile um, and so wrapped up in really broken capitalistic nonsense. Death is the thing that places us in context of the rest of the universe. It is the time when all of our substance and everything we have been gets shared back out to everything else. Um, when all of this borrowed flesh um, and all of the borrowed feelings and ideas and experiences that we've taken in from other people and things during our time alive stops being clutched so tightly and goes back to being held by everyone, not us. Um, it's the thing that says there are rules that everyone has to follow, that everyone is beholden to, that there are systems that we belong to that you can't buy your way out of or earn your way out of or be good enough or bad enough to avoid um, that we're part of something bigger. And so when I show up in a, in a death situation, I feel like one of my primary responsibilities is to just be a connection to a larger world full of dead and dying things because that's what living is. Um, and people need to remember that they're alive when they're sitting there at that doorway when they've helped someone through it. And so as, as like, I guess that's sort of an esoteric answer on a more practical level. 
um, you want to make sure that everything that is not that big cosmic stuff is taken care of, right? That that they know that they can rely on not having to worry about anything but what they're going through in the same way as when you show up to do a wedding, right? <laughs> like when I'm doing premarital counseling for folks, I'm like, all right, is there anyone who you expect to be showing up who you expect is going to make trouble, right? Is there someone you've got to invite who you know is going to make drama? Can we assign someone to shepherd that person so <laughs> you don't have to think about it while you're dealing with something else? And in the same way, when you're dealing with a memorial service or a funeral or a deathbed, you want to be able to say, this is taken care of. This is taken care of. This is taken care of. If it makes you feel better to do something that you can see real progress in, feel free to do a dish, but otherwise they will be done, right? That, you know, whether you're in someone's home or at a, a religious venue or a funeral home that they don't need to worry about cleaning up their teacup, um, that they don't need to worry about remembering to eat because someone's got their back. Um, and so that's sort of like, there's like the cosmic level, the pragmatic level, and then there's the community level, which is that a lot of people, when we're dying, it should be the most connected time in our lives because death is constant, but life is not. And death in its way is so deeply fair and dying isn't. Um, there are so many people who don't get the death care that they want or need or deserve that don't have community showing up around them that aren't honored in how they want their bodies treated or disposed of that aren't honored in who, which loved ones are there. And that kind of thing can be just so devastating. One of the first, I think the first memorial service I ever attended was for the first other trans person I ever knew before I was even out um, and who had been thrown out um, when she started transition, who died um, shortly thereafter unhoused um, and whose family rushed in to basically detransition the body and dress that kid up in a suit and let everyone know what a good Christian boy he was. And it was crushing to see someone who had died rather than succumb to that coercive system be non-consensually absorbed back into it. And that's a story I've seen many times. And in my community, I, so one of the fields I work in um, is uh, suicide prevention and response. Um, and I work with a number of agencies on that. And I remember showing up for a professional meeting with a bunch of colleagues. Um, and we were going through introductions. And one of the questions we were asked was to name the person that we had lost who had gotten us into this line of work. And the, cir the circle's going around and there are all of these people naming the person they had lost. And that loss having changed their lives so profoundly 
that they had devoted their lives to working in a field of preventing other such losses. And I realized that I didn't have a the person I had lost count because there is such an epidemic of despair, of uh, denial of resources and support and care in my community that I, especially in my adult, adult life, have, have grown accustomed to a friend or acquaintance dying pretty much monthly. That's horrifying. For years, it's a, it's a rhythm. Um, and it's just whether it's someone who's a couple degrees removed from you or one degree removed from you or someone you know or someone you love um, and whether it is violence inflicted on them or it is dying of hopelessness. And in so many of those instances, they did not have equal access to a good death. And their loved ones didn't have equal access to grief. They were denied access to funerals. They weren't invited. They were kept out. They didn't get a say. Um, they didn't get to be part of the narrative. They didn't get to be part of the ritual. And when I say ritual, I don't necessarily mean something theistic. I personally am a religious person, but I would say maybe the majority of the people I care for aren't. Um, for a lot of reasons. And the last thing they need is someone to push a worldview or a view of divinity on them when they're vulnerable. Um, but a ritual, whether or not there's some kind of supernatural element to it, is a picture of, uh, of a cosmos. It is a picture of a world. Um, it says, at this pivotal moment of change or observance, these are the people and the things that are a part of it. This is the choreography of, of the world um, here where it gets a little blurry. And a funeral in particular is a picture of love, right? Uh, grief, is, grief is an expression of love. And a funeral or a memorial service is a picture, is a depiction of love. And it's supposed to include people who feel that love, who act on that love, who are part of that love, who, to whom the dead person matters. And when you deny people being a part of that, you're, you're saying that you don't consider their part in that story, in that love, to matter. And that's, that is one of the most um, person-denying, negating things you can do to say that you are not part of this community, you are not part of this family, you're not part of this life, and therefore not part of this death. Um, and so many people, they're, they're alone in a hospital, in a, on a deathbed, in a coffin. Um, and when you give people the chance to be a part of it, I've been part of memorials where people had memorial, separate memorials on separate coasts. Um, and um, so that various people could show up. I, I did a memorial service once for a friend in the Castro in San Francisco, and there were a couple of birth family members there. And also row after row, pew after pew of queer family who showed up to pay their respects, including 
dozens of like high femmes ritualistically ruining their eye makeup weeping um, and butches in their best suits. And, and that was as pure an expression of the funerary urge as I can possibly imagine. Um, as a, like as a community, we have to make room for that and we have to treat that as as true as it is. That's incredible. And, you know, it's so funny because thinking about this going into this conversation, I was definitely approaching the idea of inclusive death care as a provider. Um, but, uh, you know, which you certainly speak to, but also bringing in that that community aspect um, where respecting personhood goes beyond the care of the body and placement and memorialization, but making sure to be, uh, you know, to make sure everybody's at the, at the service. Right. We live in this profoundly individualistic culture, this American capitalistic overculture, which pretends that death is as individual as life when neither is. But for me, a self is not an individual. A self is a we. Um, and you have to let people be a part of a we even in death. And it is, I would say, blasphemous to, to negate that for people. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an honor to be a part of that I um I have a private nerdery for archaeology. Um, I've been fortunate enough to do things like get to study grave goods from ancient settlements that were, you know, that were dug and studied. Um, and one of the things I learned in that study is that we first start really identifying hominins as human when we see evidence of funerary rites, when we see evidence of death care, because that's the first physical evidence that we have of relationship between the living, is that they miss each other when they're gone. That's, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna try and stop saying that's amazing after every answer, but I'm not gonna make any promises on that front. Um, so that kind of leads me into uh, memorialization. Obviously that's something that uh, I work with, uh, I work in. Um, so, so basically we're a generation lost to final placement. Us, uh-huh. the, you know, before, just before us, just after us, there is this, um, lack of placement that we have seen in previous generations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it seems like younger people are more interested in it, but we've definitely seen a move away from permanent placement. The example, of course, always being the uh, ashes on the mantle or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that you later find in Goodwill or a storage unit. And right. yeah, so I, I, I actually used know. to clean storage units out. That's one of the many jobs I've done and <laughs> oof, the things you find. I, I am very familiar. <laughs> um, I just didn't know if that was something that uh, no, I, you wanted to speak to or. I think we need something. Um, and different people need a different something. And I have wonderful models from multiple cultures that my ancestors come from, um, right? Um, I, I take a lot of inspiration from my Jewish ancestors and family in terms of uh, especially care and last rites. The idea of a Hevra Kadisha, that like you have a group of people in a community who know that they're who shows up to take care of a body and set up the morning and 
you know, and clean and dress and, and see folks through is something I think every community should have something like that. Um, you know, as a, as a person of Chinese descent, um, I really value some of our traditions of ancestor veneration. Um, whether or not there is a grave outside the home, the idea of having an ancestor shrine in the house where um, loved ones can have a physical place set aside for someone who has gone from living to dead so that they're still part of the family and community and they can receive offerings and expressions of care and love long after a funeral. Um, I think that that is uh, an exquisite model. Um, I think models around, uh, right, the, the morning at the 40 day and one year are, are important. I think grave markers are important. It depends. Um, and again, in this very sort of individualistic world, um, the idea of a family plot is not accessible to most of us anymore, nor are, you know, ancient European traditions like you bury all of the bodies in a cemetery and then after a period where they've decomposed, you dig up the bones and you arrange the bones in a communal ossuary so there's room for more people to decay um, in the field. That's, right, that's that's a thing that is true in a lot of places um, and is much more common before the modern cemetery with the sealed cement box and all the preservatives. Um, I don't think that we all need a pyramid. Um, but I um, I think about actually an ancient tomb model I studied um, in, uh, oof, I'm, I'm gonna not name a time period because it will be a mistake, um, but it's an ancient Near Eastern tomb model um, where there's sort of a, uh, a sort of a cave where a, fam a family, right, buries people and they're placed essentially on a, on a shelf like a bed. Um, and folks can show up and do offerings and, and rituals for them. And then eventually they're packed sort of into a common ossuary to make more room again. Um, but the, the door cannot be physically opened by one person. Um, it is a kind of grave that can only be visited by a group so that no one is ever there alone. Um, and I found that so affecting when I studied it. Um, people need something to visit. Uh, I don't think it necessarily needs to be an urn of ashes or a fancy columbarium or a grave in a graveyard uh, or an ancestor shrine, but they need something, whether it's an ancestor plaque um, or an object to be held, or an urn on a mantelpiece, or a grave marker. We need something physical because we are physical beings. Um, and when we're interacting with so profoundly physical a reality as death um, and grief, which can be so ephemeral, um, anchoring it in an object that we can touch, um, that we can visit or give something to, offers a kind of comfort that is very hard to come by. And when we negate that, um, when we don't give access to that, it can leave a lot of things unworked through. Um, I am in love with the Dia de los Muertos traditions of having picnics at family graves, right? We need the dead to be part of the community of the living. 
if we want to be in any way prepared for our own deaths and if we want to be prepared for the deaths yet to come in our lives. We need to be able to visit our dead and to talk to them and uh, interact with them and let them know that we love them because whether or not that reaches them, and I believe that it does, but whether or not it does, it reaches and changes something in us to know that we will be visited one day. If there is an ancestor shrine in our home and that's a tradition that is carried on beyond us, we know that one day we will have such a shrine in the home of our loved ones that there will be some object presence of us um, that we might be visited and we might receive incense and an orange now and then. And there's something really reassuring about knowing that you're part of something like that. And especially for those of us who can't afford uh, a fancy um, spot in a fancy graveyard, those of us who can't afford um, expensive funeral rites, those of us who don't have access to where our family or our ancestors might have gone, to have an accessible, physical something for our loved ones to share um, even if we can't control what happens to our body, knowing that can be such a balm. Um, the people who are dying that I have known leave behind a lot, um, but they often worry about the people they're leaving behind who they don't know whether or not they're gonna be able to take care of anymore and who they know will be hurting when they're gone. And it can be such a reassurance to be able to say, they'll have this piece of you. They'll have this that represents you. They'll have this in, in the little picture of their picture of love in their personal constellation. And they'll get to keep interacting with the part of you that resides in them and have a place to externalize it to make it not so hard. And quite honestly, you seem like the type that might have hung around in a graveyard or two just to pick up on the... Uh... The good vibes. Hey, listen, you know, um, I've hung out in a lot of graveyards and sometimes it has been work and sometimes it has been going to clean neglected gravestones and um, and try and do honor to folks. And sometimes it's just straight up gothiness. And I love it all. I'm here for it all. <laughs> I know we're running low, short, not low, short on time. Um, but I did have one thing to discuss. I... My funeral food, because I'm from a culture that gives food. Let's do funeral food. In the food. time yes. of grief. If a, a family member is lost, if a neighbor loses a parent, you show up with something that they can stick in the oven and eat at a later time. What is your funeral food? Oof. Oof. That's a good one. Um, I mean, in terms of what I would bring someone, so much of that depends on what they need. I think a recurring theme of this conversation is identify respecting personhood, respecting the individual, uh, respecting the I and thou of each right. relationship. Right, right. I'm not going to go bringing a, bring, bringing a big meaty lasagna to a vegetarian loved one um, or congregant um, because I have manners. Um, <laughs> And different people, right? I remember the first memorial I did where someone brought funeral potatoes and the part of me that is from the middle of nowhere was like, I have arrived as a clergywoman. Um, funeral potatoes are actually my jam. That's what I generally bring. But they're legit. I've brought, I brought avocado sushi once when uh, those in grief were not looking for anything with dairy. But 
I remember the first funeral I led um, a little bit before I was ordained. Um, a friend of mine who was there, who was profoundly from Arkansas, sent me home with a covered plate of brisket and cornbread. And I truly felt like I was part of a community. I felt like I, as the, you know, as the preacher who'd shown up to, done the, to do the job was a part of the community of grief. Um, and it was a great comfort when I did her funeral too. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm never gonna turn away good cornbread. <laughs> I, I know as uh, not only people who have, uh, you know, dealt with helping people in grief, but also as, as women, food often is part of right? our home rituals. And that's always been a tradition that I, I like to uphold. It's tricky in the clergy um, because especially women in the clergy are often expected to do um, a lot more sort of womanly caretaking labor than men in the clergy. Um, and when you're, you know, leading a congregation, people will expect you to take care of the dishes and cook for the potluck and help clean up in a way that they would never ask a male colleague. Um, and so I've often had to hold back from cooking as an expression of care and love, which is one of the things that is most important to me in my personal life. I entirely was referring to personal grief and not... No, no, absolutely. You know, I would... I would not bring the casserole to a service I am providing. <laughs> right, right. I I cooked for my ordination service, and I never heard the end of it from my ordaining congregation. <laughs> they all were like, when are you going to do that again? What about now? What about now? You were talking about that that one thing you were making. And um, so, you know, it's it's all real, but it food food is, even as grief and death care are, food is one of our profoundest and oldest expressions of love. And they go together real well. Me, I'm going to need hot sauce. <laughs> a lot of hot sauce. Not funeral potatoes with hot sauce or something else entirely? No, I feel like it doesn't go. Yeah. It doesn't go. I get that. Uh, not soup. I'm going to say not soup. I am also going to go with not soup. Soup feels obvious and it's a great communal food. And if you ever want to know how to get in in a new community that you're not sure of, you just pitch in on the soup. Um, but I don't want anything that I'm going to get all over myself while I'm not in a position to do my laundry. I understand. I am, but learning, changing, growing, that's what we're always trying to do. Right. Um, okay. Is there anything that you would like to discuss that I did not ask a question about? Sure. Um, I'm sure you've had other people say this, but I want everyone out there to have a plan around their dying. Have a plan that you've discussed with the people you trust about what you want and some documentation to make sure that they can make sure that that's what happens and that the people you love are part of the picture of love that is your death. Um, Make sure that you do some emotional work to square with the fact that you will die um, and that that is not awful. It's just true. And you can spend your whole life fighting it or you can live a life where you make friends with it and you don't open that present early where you can trust that it will come in its own time 
and you'll get around to it when you get around to it. And so you don't need to focus on it so much. The people who are most worried about the death are the people who pretend that they can do anything about it. Um, and that the people you love will too. And the better prepared you are to, to make the little things not a problem, the more energy and care you'll be able to spend on the things that are unsolvable and unknowable. Um, I, I, uh, I will always love the book of Ecclesiastes, Koheleth, which, um, which says that a lot of people are going to try and sell you ideas about what happens after we die or what it means. And they don't know more than you do. But what we do know for sure is that it's better to not deal with things alone and that when we fall down, it's good to have someone there to pick us up. And as a disability justice advocate and activist, there is nothing I have learned more powerfully than interdependence is not optional. Um, and as we are living in a world where our way of life is dying, where our assumptions about the future and the way the world that we grew up in is dying and a new one is in some form or another being born, the more square we can get with mortality, the more we can accept change because the future is a dark room and we don't know what's in it. And it's better if we've got a hand to hold when we walk in. Once again, wonderful. Uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us here. Uh, if people are looking for more information or anything about you, is there a place we should refer them? Uh, I am currently the chair of the board of directors at the Queer Cultural Center operating out of San Francisco and serve on the board of the Allied Media Projects in Detroit. Um, those are both places where I'm working right now. Um, I work through my ordaining congregation, the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples, um, which uh, you can find online. Um, and all of our social media is broken and being run by fascists right now. So that's a little <laughs> bit in flux. So you're not TikTok dancing in your off time. Uh, I think that is for the best. Um, but uh, I'm trying out some of these new platforms and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> wonderful. Well, I look forward to it. And I can't, like I said, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us. And it was wonderful to hear you speak and to be part of that conversation. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Anytime. say potato i say potato you say tomato i say tomato potato potato tomato tomato let's call the whole thing off